Good morning. Glad Ben explained to you what I do, because it's really hard explaining to people what I do for a living. I've started just telling people I'm a recruiter for a nonprofit, because that's much shorter and easier to explain than church planning catalyst, and um, and it's the truth. I recruiting for a nonprofit, just a really important nonprofit, right? Not just anything. So it's fun to be with you guys this morning. Um, before I was a church planning catalyst, I moved up here. I'm from Alabama. I moved up here almost 15 years ago now uh, to, for two years. I moved here for a two-year position um, to uh, do campus ministry at Wichita State. And uh, as a part of that, I started an international, or I was a part of a group, mostly of students and me, uh, starting an international student church at Wichita State. And it was actually through that that I met Ben. Uh, ben was an RA in uh, Fairmount, I guess, yeah. And uh, he was doing ministry there as an RA, and he was um, uh, doing ministry with our two, a, a young man whose sister was a part of our ministry, and he was kind of on the fringes of the mission, which is the name of the church. He wasn't a believer uh, but we were having a Bible study at my house, and some guys from the mission came, and, and Ben. Uh, and so uh, I met Ben that night and uh, had some other interactions with him along the way. And eventually that young man came to faith through the ministry of Ben and the ministry of some other students at the mission. And uh, so anyway, known him a while. It's been a real honor to be a part of what, uh, on the outside of what you guys have done here at Orchard. And uh, it's fun to work with other guys like Ben who are really passionate about starting a new work to reach people that aren't being reached. So thankful for you guys' commitment here and for Ben and Rose and your commitment here. So fun to be a part of this. I'm actually going to pick up this week right where Ben left off uh, last week in 2 Corinthians. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, um, 7 through the rest of the chapter there. Um, as you know, Paul, he wrote lots of letters throughout his ministry. We have many of them in the Bible today, and uh, with almost without exception, he was writing to groups of people that he, he knew well, he knew personally, he cared for greatly, and um, some of them he actually started the church that he was writing back to, and, and his ministry to them continued after he left, primarily through letters, and so he would write back to them, uh, sometimes in response, it seems like, to things they wrote and sometimes in response to things he heard about things that were going on, he was writing back to, to correct and encourage and to give further instruction along the way. And, um, but always, it, he wrote back in order to, to help them grow in their faith, to help them, uh, to, help to, to call them to a, a better, better way of following Christ, right? Uh, often there was leadership left behind uh, to, to, to encourage them, um, but Paul was sort of the spiritual father figure who, who would write back and encourage, always wanting the best for them because he loved them. He cared for them. He had invested greatly in their lives. And we know what that's like. All of us know we have people in our lives that we love and we care for, and to various, le- various degrees we've invested in their lives. And we want the best for them. We want to not see them uh, fall into old ways or holding on to old things that aren't as uh, great as what God would have them have. And so and so we want to see them grow, and that's what that's what Paul is is uh, doing in this letter, at least in this part, is encouraging them to um, either not fall back or not turn to old ways that uh, hold them back and 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 keep them from experiencing all that God has for them. So let's read here in verse uh, chapter two, or sorry, chapter three, um, starting in verse seven. 
Paul says, now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? All right, let's stop right there for a second. So, so Paul is comparing two things here. He's comparing what he refers to as, at, at the very beginning of the verse, as the ministry of death uh, to uh, the ministry of the Spirit there at the very end of that sentence. So what is he talking about? Well, probably most of you, because you're good with context clues and you know many of your Bible stories, uh, Paul is talking about here the law. And this, this passage that we're going to look at today actually fits in really well with a passage in Exodus. So, so flip over, if you can, into Exodus. Oh, that would be bad. Over into Exodus 34, um, where Paul is kind of referring to, uh, or what the story that Paul is referencing here. So you probably know Exodus, the book of Exodus, the whole book is all about Israel exiting Egypt. They had been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years, and it was time, uh, in God's time, it was time for them to, to leave Egypt and to be free. And that story contains lots of, uh, lots of drama. You have Moses um, who is called back to his people to lead them out, to, to go before Pharaoh and request, even demand that his people be set free. And, and Pharaoh, you know, his heart being hardened towards that idea and God sending plague after plague after plague until finally the, the final plague, the death of the firstborn and, and God's provision of the Passover and all that that, all that, that carries with it. And, and finally, Pharaoh letting the people leave, and so the people packing up and leaving, and they're leaving and get to the Red Sea, and they look back, and here comes Pharaoh, and he's coming because he's changed his mind again. And so God parts the Red Sea, and the people are able to cross um, cross on dry land, and then Pharaoh comes, and his, his, his army chases after them, and so God unparts the Red Sea and drowns all the chasing, uh, the, the chasing chariots and, and, and army. And finally, God's people are free. They're, they're free from Egypt. They're out here on their own, and they find themselves for the first time in 400 years, and obviously the first time in, in, in the memories of any of these people, lifetimes of any of these people, they're not under the oppression and under the authority and under the, the strict rule of Pharaoh and the slave masters. Now they're just out here, and they're on their own. And they're being led by Moses and Aaron, and, and so now what? Now what do we do? Um, this is kind of new territory for us. And so God leads them to this mountain and calls uh, Moses up onto this mountain. And on this mountaintop, God gives Moses the, well, here's now what? He gives them the law to explain to them how that they're supposed to live. Now that you're free from slavery here in Egypt, here's how you live in response to what I've done for you. And so he gives them the law. He gives them a law that can, it's, it's stuff about, about uh, sacrifices, about offerings, about what the tent of meeting where they're supposed to do all this is supposed to look like, how the priests are supposed to dress, how they're supposed to farm, how they're supposed to interact with each other. A whole society, God gives instruction for what this new life is supposed to look like, free from Egypt, following me. This is what I want you, Israel, to look like because I want you to be different and be set apart and look like 
people who belong to me. And a part of that law, the, the kind of the summary statement of that law, is the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, right? And in that, uh, that specific part of the law, God writes on these two tablets of stone that Moses brings down to present to the people. So that in, in Exodus 34, verse 29, this is, this is, this is the passage, and this is, this is where we're at in that, and this is what Paul is sort of referencing back to. He says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments on it, when he came down with those in his hand, um, he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. So, so flip back over now, back to 2 Corinthians, uh, verse 7. This is what he's talking about. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, so the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments here are just are, are a summary, uh, kind of a representation of all of the law, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So that's what Paul is referring to. He's comparing the law, which he's referring to here as the ministry of death, to this new ministry, the ministry of the Spirit, which, he's, which is the ministry of Christ, the gospel, all that he has done. So let's keep, keep reading here. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the law, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So, so Paul is now referred to the law as the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, but he's also said it has glory. This is not the way I would typically think of explaining something that has, or describing something that has glory, but still Paul says it had glory, the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation, but how much more glory does this ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness have? So Paul's argument is, uh, is an argument of from lesser to more. So he says, this thing, it had glory. And it was like this, ministry of death and ministry of condemnation. But this new thing, how much more glory will it have? Because it, or does it have? Because it's a ministry of the Spirit and a ministry of righteousness. So why is he referring to the law, which was good, given by God, beneficial for his people, as a ministry of death and condemnation? Well, think about what the law provided. So the law provided for this people good things, right? It provided for them a way to be made right with God. But part of what it also did is point out to them how they weren't right with God. Over and over and over, the law, when they would look at it, they would see before them pages of rules and how they were to live. And the reason they were to live like that is because that's how God was. And they look at this law, and countless times a day, they realize, I'm condemned before the law. I'm condemned. And so what did God offer? God said, okay, yes, you're condemned by the law. Here's how you make yourself right. You take this animal, you take it to the priest, he does his thing, and now you are no longer condemned before the law. Until what? Until they go back home. Or they may not even make it back home, right? If they're me, they didn't make it back home. <laughs> they sin again along the way. They're condemned again before the law. And so what do they do? They have to go back, right? And they have to do it again. And this sacrifices are always a sacrifice of death, not of them, right? But a death of this animal or uh, being, being slaughtered there on the altar in order to make, uh, make um, an atonement for their sin. 
but it's not a permanent atonement, right? It's temporary. It just lasts. It makes them right before God until the next time. Over and over and over. This is the cycle for all of Israel, for all, all the way from back from Mount Sinai until this time when Paul, well, until Jesus, but still there were Jews that were practicing this way, obviously. This was the, this was the repetition over and over and over. I'm condemned before the law, so I must make sacrifice. All right, I'm good with God. I'm condemned before the law over and over and over again. This is what it brought. But still God said, or Paul says, this had this much glory, even though it was, it was what it was. It brought condemnation and death. Still, it had this much glory. How much more glory does this bring? Well, what is this? What, how is this different? This isn't a ministry of death and of condemnation. This is a ministry of the Spirit and a ministry of righteousness. This is the idea that under Christ, because of his sacrifice, we have what's called Christ's imputed righteousness. And what imputed just means is, is that we haven't, something that's imputed is, is it's just gifted to us. It's just granted to us. It was, it's, it's a benefit. In other words, it's not something that you've earned and you've acquired on your own, but it's because of Christ that he imputes, he gives, he grants his righteousness on us. And so now, Instead of like Israel, every day they wake up condemned before the law. Every day we who are in Christ wake up not condemned, but we wake up righteous. Not because of us, but because of Jesus, because of what he has done. And so, and so because of that, now it has, instead of this much glory, because gosh, it brought death and condemnation, this much glory because of the righteousness and life that it brings. And Paul continues in verse 10, he says, Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory, much, sorry, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul is saying the the law, that was temporary and it had this much glory. So how much more glory will this that is permanent have under Christ? But then, in verse 10, go back a verse where he talks about how what seemed to have glory has come to have no glory at all. So I'm not really good with illustrations, but let's imagine that this happened. You wake up one night and uh, you find yourself outside and it's dark because it's night, right? It's dark at night. But I mean, it's really dark. Like it's a cloudy night, so no stars, no moon, this is like when you, if you've ever gone into a cave, you get to the back of the cave and they're like, okay, let's show you what really darkness is and you can't see your, face, your hand in front of your face. I mean, it's super dark outside. So you wake up and it's dark. You can't see anything around you. So once you get over the whole panic of how did I get here, but let's get over that. You start feeling around, what do I do now? And you feel in your pockets, right? And you've got a match and, 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 you're, real, and you're, real, you're like a Boy Scout or I don't know if they teach Girl Scouts this or not, but anyway. Uh, you know how to start, you, you can find some stuff in front of you and you start a fire, right? And all of a sudden, the world is completely different for you. Because what before, you couldn't see anything. Now you've got this little fire going and there's like this little circle here where, oh, I can, I can see. I can see, that, oh, look, there's, there's some food over here that however I got here, there was food over here, <laughs> right? And so, but you can see in this little circle around the fire that, 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 that you, can, you can manage here. Right? The fire provides enough light that you can see all that you need to see to exist in this, this little sphere. And so you're, okay, this is cool. I can manage this. And you get comfortable enough and you go back to sleep. 
A few hours later, you wake up. And because it's no longer night, the sun is up. And now the world looks completely different, right? You can see over here there are trees. Over here there's, uh, there's a little stream. Over here there's some houses. You can see for miles all around you because you're in Kansas after all. And so <laughs> you, can see, you can see forever. When I said trees, I meant like three trees. And so, so there are a few trees over here. And, and you can see all around you the world is completely different. And you realize you're right here by the fire you know what, it's not really any brighter right here by the fire than it is over here not by the fire. Because all that light that the fire was giving off before, well, it's still giving off that light, right? But now it doesn't seem like it because the sun and the world is lit in a totally different way than it was before. So that's, that's how this old glory was. It, 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 it's like it's gone. Because what now we can experience in Christ, the glory is so much greater. And so much bigger. And so now what seemed to have glory before, seems like it doesn't anymore because of the surpassing glory that now has come. In verse 12, Paul says, Since we have such a hope in this glory that's permanent and is so much greater, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Okay, Let's flip back over to 34, or sorry, Exodus 34. So Paul here is referring back to what Moses did after he came down the mountain. Verse, uh, verse, so back to 34, verse 29. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. He didn't realize, he didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Verse 30, Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They, this guy is glowing. There's this glowing guy coming down the mountain. I'm not so sure who this is, what this is. And so everyone is scared. Then Moses, but Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded him them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. So, Paul here, I closed my Bible instead of sticking my book back in, sorry. So Paul here is referring back to Moses and saying, hey, we're not, uh, we're not timid like he was. We're bold. And unlike him who put a veil over his face when he went in and when he came out, um, we, don't, we're, we don't do that. And he's saying that so when we look at this story, we might think, okay, why did Moses put a veil over his face? And, and, and what Paul is saying here is he, he, he went in to meet with God, right? And he took the, fa- took the veil off, and it's like his face was recharged with the, being before the glory of God. And he comes back out, and his face is shining, and he tells the people whatever it is God has told him, and then he puts the veil over his face until he goes back in again. Well, why did he do that? Well, Paul here comes to a different conclusion than I would have. I figure, so he's not, he's keeping the veil over his face so it doesn't freak out the people, you know, so that Mrs. Moses doesn't complain at night when it's too bright in their tent for him to, her to sleep, you know, whatever. 
But what Paul is saying here is that, is that the, the glory, just like the glory of the law, is coming to an end. It's fading. His face is fading. And, and this is representative of what was happening to the glory of the law. It was great and it was good and God intended it to be that way, but it was never intended to be permanent. This was not the final solution to the problem that was created by man's sin. The final solution was yet to come. And so the glory of this setup that God created was constantly fading. And so, and so Moses put this veil over his face so that the people wouldn't recognize or wouldn't see that this was all being brought to an end. In verse 14, he says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Paul is saying there are still people to this day that they exist with this veil over their hearts. And he's referring specifically to the people who, to the Jews who are looking back at the law and they don't recognize that the glory is fading. They don't recognize that the glory is gone as compared to the glory that I'm bringing you here when I present Christ in this new ministry to you. They can't see that because they still have this glory or this veil over their face or over their hearts that doesn't let them recognize that it's gone. It's going. And, and so they don't see that and they can't see that until they turn to the Lord. They're holding on to this old way of being because they have this veil that keeps them from seeing that this new way of being is so much greater and is so much more glory-filled than what they've experienced in their lives to this point. In verse 17, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul says, when we turn, it's only upon turning to the Lord that the veil is removed. And so we, we who are believers, all of us here who are believers, when we have turned to the Lord, now with unveiled face, he says, we behold the glory of the Lord. Just like who? Just like Moses did. Moses beheld the glory of the Lord with the veil removed. He recognized God for who he really was. And so we do the same now that we have turned to the Lord and we are in Christ. We behold him with unveiled face and his ministry to us continues, right? This ministry of the spirit and this ministry of righteousness, we're granted that, right? His righteousness is imputed to us. But that doesn't end the relationship and the, and the, and the things that are going on in our lives because of what Jesus has done. No, it says we are being transformed. We, we behold with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to, the another, to another. So as we behold the glory of God, as we look on him with an unveiled face, we are being transformed into the same image. The same image of what? The same image of Jesus, right? We are being transformed and being made more and more like Jesus. And the way Paul is measuring that, the unit of measurement, apparently, for growing in our image likeness of Jesus is degrees of glory. So, so it's not measured in units of time. So there are some of us who have been walking with God for a very long time. We, we committed our lives, we turned to God a very long time ago. 
And as it turns out, that's not a unit of measurement in Christ-likeness. We like to think maybe it is, and there surely should be some correlation between the amount of time we walked with God and our Christ-likeness, right? But we all know from personal experience and from people that we've met that that's not really always the case. There ought to be a great difference in one who has walked with Jesus for 30 years versus one that has walked with Jesus for 30 days. But just a unit of measurement of time does not make us more and more like Jesus. No, it's in degrees of glory. As we behold the image of God, as we hold him front and center in our lives, as we make him what we're focused on, then we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And we are all being transformed into that same image. Individually, we're being transformed, but all together, right? This church, this, this gathering of God's people, and the church in general, we all share this in common. And we share this, this, this pathway, we share this way of living that no one else shares. We have this in common with every other believer, and we don't share that with anyone else. Only believers who have turned to God had the veil removed from our hearts and that are beholding God before us with unveiled face. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's why this kind of gathering together as the church and small groups and and community and fellowship and all that, we do that together because that's one thing we can't do with anybody else. No one else gets to come on that journey with us aside from other believers, those who are also being transformed. And as we are being transformed into this image from one degree of glory to another, then we begin to recognize what once we thought had glory now seems to have no glory because of the glory that we see in God that surpasses it. C.S. Lewis, who's a really smart guy and has always have a very clever and English way of putting things, has a wonderful image for what this looks like. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We mess around in our slums making mud pies because we think it's it's the best fun we've ever had. And what we don't realize is that the infinite joy that God offers us as compared to what we do every day, giving up what God has offered us of a, a holiday at sea, a beach vacation, because we're so, we just don't realize, because we don't understand how much greater it is to do what God has given us as opposed to we want, what we want to do. So like an ignorant child, we sit there, we make our mud pies, we hold on to our grudges, we think that our plans are better than God's, we pursue what we want instead of what God wants, we fill in the blank, all because it brings us all the joy we can imagine. Because we don't realize what God has promised, the glory, the joy is infinite compared to that. Now, I'm guessing none of you here, probably none of you here are, are former Jews holding on to the law. But we all hold on to something. We all believe something, even if it's just for a few minutes, 
But all of us have our thing that we hold on to and we say, you know what? No, this, God, you don't understand. This really is good. This really is great. And it probably brings you a little bit of joy every time you hold on to that thing and mess with that thing and play with that thing. But all of us are wrong when we hold on to this thing and like an ignorant child when we don't turn it over to the infinite joy that God offers us in something else. What is that thing for you? What is that thing that you hold on to and you keep trading in this much joy for this much? Trading in a beach vacation for mud pies in a slum. That's what Paul is getting at here. From lesser to more. Why would you trade in this, or why would you hold on to this little bit of glory-giving thing when God has offered is so much greater and has so much more glory to offer you. Bow with me, if you would, please. I want you to take a few minutes and, and think about what that is for you. What is it that you are holding on to that you're allowing to take the place of the infinite glory that God has offered you in Christ? Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's a way of living. Maybe it's a, um, a relationship. Maybe it's a belief. I don't know what it is for you. But whatever it is that you're believing that you and, and your ways are better than God's ways, that, 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 that this thing that you know you shouldn't do, but boy, it makes me happy. What is it that you're holding on to and not believing that the infinite joy, the infinite glory that God has promised you in Christ really is better? What's your mud pie? Where is your slum? What are you trading in for something, as it turns out, is even much better than a beach vacation? God, I pray that you would show each of us what it is that we're holding on to. Why is it that we're not understanding as we behold your face that the glory you offer is so much better than what we're holding on to. God, I pray that you would show each of us here what that is. And then God, may we trust, may we believe that you and you alone give us freedom from that. That we are free from the sin We are free from holding on to these lies. That we would trust you, that you really are Lord, Savior, Creator over all things. That you really do want what's best for us. And God, we would rely on your power to help us let go. So God, show us what these things are. Show us our mud pies. And then God, help us to let go of those and turn to you into the infinite joy that you promise us.